Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. In North America, the United States in particular, males are regularly circumcised at birth. Over the years, various arguments have been made leading up to a shift in the American Academy of Pediatrics suggesting that the benefits of male infant circumcision outweigh the risks. In this episode, the first of two, I had the chance to talk to Brian Earp, an outspoken critic of the arguments often made in favor of non-therapeutic male infant circumcision. He approaches the topic with logic and science, and we start today by looking at these arguments regarding benefits versus risks and how they relate to a child's right to bodily autonomy. I know this is a topic that can be hard for some people, but it's an important one that we need to discuss. I am so excited to have with me today Brian Earp. He is an American bioethicist, philosopher, and interdisciplinary researcher. He is currently the Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and the Hastings Center, and a research fellow at the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. He received his Master of Science in Psychology from the University of Oxford, his Master of Philosophy in History and the Philosophy of Science from the University of Cambridge, and is now completing his PhD in Philosophy and Psychology at Yale University. He is the author of the book, Love is the Drug, The Chemical Future of Our Relationships, and has also authored numerous publications on a variety of ethical issues, including our topic for today, circumcision. So thank you so much for being here. Everybody's favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Exactly. So before we dive into some of these really, I think, pressing issues, how did you become interested in ethics more broadly speaking and then in circumcision more specifically? Well, since I was an undergrad, I was uh, taking philosophy classes and some of them that I really liked were ones that touched on moral and ethical issues. And I had always kind of combined my interest in these normative questions, how should the world be with my training in cognitive science where you try to describe the world scientifically, how are things? And circumcision is a very interesting place where these two things come together because the the scientific claims and the medical claims that are raised are very complicated and you have to kind of look behind the curtain and see how these papers come about and how are the different ways that you might interpret them other than just reading the abstract. And then uh, normatively, a lot of moral and ethical questions are raised. Um, at the bottom of things, you're looking at, you know, cutting a person's body who can't consent to it. And so that at least puts it on the moral scene. And then what you do with that, you know, the different competing perspectives you have to try to negotiate between that gets very complicated. But it's a very rich topic. It touches on sexuality, on religion, on identity, on the body, uh, on pain, on harm, on science. <laughs> all things. And so it's just uh, never ending questions are, are raised by this, this sort of taboo uh, topic in our society. And I hope we're going to touch on a lot of those today. And I find, I just have to share, it's really, for me, a topic that I've been involved on the Children's Health and Human Rights Partnership for a while as an advisor. It's something I've spoken out against for years, but I actually had to step back from talking about it for a few years because when my son was born in 2015, I don't know what, it just hit. At a personal level, I looked at this little baby and the thought of, that this is just so normative, someone could take him and just do that was, I don't know why. I mean, the reaction was so visceral. I couldn't imagine at a moral level. And it's not a judgment of people that have chosen to do it because I know there are all these other factors that go into it. But personally, I took one look and just couldn't do it and found myself unable to even talk about it for a while with people because the idea became 
every time I talked about it, all I saw was him. And that yeah. was so hard to kind of fathom there, you know? You're you're in a potentially unusual position in that you had this is a topic that you had thought about and investigated before, you know, showing up at the hospital to have your kid. And for a lot of people, um, circumcision is is something that's really in the back of their minds. It's something that hangs in the cultural air that they breathe, but they don't necessarily critically evaluate it. And so I think a lot of people with just their ordinary moral intuitions, if, if circumcision didn't exist and it were introduced into the culture as a new thing and people, so, so it kind of, you had to look at it and make a judgment about it. I think most people would say, well, this seems like a strange thing to do. You've got a healthy child, nothing's wrong with them. Normally when a baby's born, you swaddle them in warm clothing and you take care not to subject them to any kind of unnecessary discomfort. And here somebody's proposing to perform a genital surgery on you know a very sensitive part of their body, a private part of their body, that where where that's not there's no medical need to do that. It's not an emergency. They're not sick. They're you know you're not saving their life by doing this. In fact, you're subjecting them to risks yeah. that they otherwise wouldn't need to undergo. And so I think most most people um, just haven't thought about it. I, I I would like to think that that for the most part this isn't a matter of people having some sort of cruel blind spot in their in their moral universe. I think they just it's it's largely a matter of ignorance. I mean, also circumcisions happen out of sight and out of mind. The yeah. doctor might say something using trivializing language like, well, it's just a little snip or maybe there's some health benefits. And so it sounds like a kind of medical thing. It's just like clipping the umbilical cord or something like that. And then it happens down the hallway. So you don't really yeah. see what happens. You just get handed back your baby who maybe looks a little startled or shocked or numb or something like that but you don't see the procedure. So I think that it's really this ignorance that is what drives a lot of the, um, you know, the continuing practice in, in those places in the world where it carries on. And that actually leads to my first question. I'm just going to go back. I was actually very lucky because my son was born at home. So there right. was no whisking him away. And yeah. my... <laughs> I had the thought in the back of my head that I'm actually being presumptuous because, of course, people have babies in different places. And I almost yeah. edited myself, but I'm glad that you... you know, <laughs> no, I did. It was, you know, my first daughter was, we planned a home birth too. And she ended up, we had to transfer to the hospital. So had she been a boy, because we didn't know, it could have been different, though also being in Canada it's a bit less presumptuous that it's going to happen here as right, right. We people know. should know that, that the United States is, is unique among so-called Western developed nations and that a majority of newborn boys are circumcised shortly after birth in yeah. Canada. There, it's kind of carried over some of this American custom, but it's not as strong. I think the rates mm -hmm. are lower. There may be like 30% or something like it's, that. Yeah, it is around 30. Yeah. And, and then, you know, if, if you look at, at Western Europe, the rates are like, very low 2% or something or less yeah. than that. It's concentrated almost entirely in religious minorities, Jews and Muslims. And so, you know, at some point, maybe we'll talk about the history and the distribution of the practice, but a lot of my uh, American friends and, and colleagues just aren't aware of the fact that the U.S. is an yeah. anomaly. It's so true. And that actually is kind of one of the first things I wanted to, to get to is because as you've already highlighted, there are so many misunderstandings and so many beliefs about circumcision that I think you put it so well as just hanging in the background. We treat them as fact. These ideas that it's just something you do. This is, you know, it's part and parcel. If you have a boy, this is what happens. And that's, you know, how it goes, unless you actively work against it to do that. So how did we get to the stage? I mean, what led to, particularly in the U.S., and I will just consider Canada a bit of an overflow, but what led to this being such a, a normalized event for families and birthing families and baby boys? Yeah, the history is, is awkward in some ways because it's you, once you start to read into it, it, it does seem a bit of a mystery why the practice continues. So, so in the late 1800s, 
uh, circumcision was introduced into U.S. medicine from actually Victorian England, where it had been trialed as part of a, an anti-sexual craze that uh, involved um, discouraging children from masturbating, basically, because masturbation was seen as a, a both a, a moral and a medical ill. I mean, this isn't the only reason. I, sometimes I think the story is told in a way that suggests it was all about controlling masturbation. That wasn't the only reason, but that was a, one predominant reason among some of those who were most excited about getting everybody to do this. The other thing, too, is that medicine was just in a this is like before even antibiotics were invented. This was the, the the time of medicine where you were more likely to die from a medical treatment than to heal from it. And so you had very underdeveloped medical theories. You had a lot of misunderstandings about the body. You had very poor quality of evidence uh, just in terms of determining cause and effect. So it's like you might try something and then the person gets better because of regression to the mean or a natural healing process. And then you think, well, it must be because of that thing I did when, they, when I performed the surgery. And so there's poor record keeping. And so forth. So what what was going on was a lot of different stuff, but there was this this desire on the medical profession to try to prove that they were a a profession rather than kind of like a trade, like a barber or a mechanic or something like that. And so they needed to really show that they had some special skills that they could bring to to heal people. And with these underdeveloped theories and the poor evidence collection, and the you know fueled by this anti-masturbation craze and the idea that if you're removing sensitive tissue that the child might want to touch you reduce the risk of over excitation of the nervous system was the basic thought. And so at the same time, there was the proposal to apply carbolic acid to the clitorises of girls because that would similarly dissuade them from touching themselves. And so you had this kind of perfect storm of moralistic and religious considerations and kind of bad medicine. And uh, it was adopted by some leading medical men of, of, the, of the period. Uh, what happened though is that when you have enough of the population circumcised then the medical reasons aren't really relevant anymore it's it's a social norm and so once it's established as a social norm then it just carries on by its own weight by sort of inertia so when you talk to most parents today in the united states and you say why are you thinking of circumcising your son overwhelmingly they'll say something like well because that's what's normal or they'll say because the father's circumcised now if you really press them some of them might have read in a newspaper somewhere that there could be some health benefits. So they'll say, oh, it's cleaner, it's healthier. But they usually don't know the details. It's just kind of like a post hoc thing that they say, because it sounds sensible. If you say, you know, I'm, I'm cutting my child's penis so that he'll have the same like scar as his father on his genitals, that sounds kind of crazy. That's not like a good reason to cut a child's penis. So people have to come up with something that sounds reasonable. And then they say these health benefits things, which I'm sure we'll get into. Mm -hmm. but, um, but anyway, to, to summarize all that, there's some dubious medical religious stuff going on in the late 1800s. You know, by the early uh, 1900s, it had become a social norm. It kind of reached its peak in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and started to decline after the 1980s. Now, you know, it's about 50% out of out of the hospital for those who have hospital births, and probably 70% rate overall. Um, it depends on which part of the country you're in. But the the predominant reason that it continues is because it's a social custom. It's basically a birth ritual that's part of American culture. It's interesting you talk about the science in the late 1800s, Kazan, you know, it seems like it's led to a whole lot of cultural problems in another discussion and area of parenting we have is this look against bed sharing, which is mm -hmm. used to be a very common practice. And again, initiated back then the idea that our exhaling was poisoning our babies, they shouldn't breathe the same breath as us was a mm -hmm. dominant medical view that leads to it. So it's amazing how we can know that we can look back, the benefit of hindsight, looking at the science and going, 
there's just no way this holds water. There is nothing that is beneficial here, but we're going to keep it going anyway, because this is, I guess, the power of cultural transmission of ideas and values. Well, I think a kind of cognitive dissonance occurs where if you're if you're a parent or you're a doctor, let's say, who's performed hundreds of circumcisions, you, you have to think that you're doing something sensible. Otherwise, you have to reflect on the fact that maybe you're, yes. you're harming people or you're, you know, this happens in all, by the way, we shouldn't focus just on circumcision. You're right to call attention to other things. You know, a lot of practices persist in medicine because there's a real cost to admitting that you made a mistake. One example is the prophylactic extraction of uh, third molars, the wisdom teeth, is another thing for which there's no evidence that this is on balance necessary unless you have a specific problem with your wisdom teeth. There's serious risks involved because you can damage the trigeminal nerve and have numbness in your face for the rest of your life. And if you look at the primary evidence for why this persists in dentistry, it's like there isn't primary evidence. It's a, it's just a practice that's sort of, you know, dentists get paid for it. Uh, they were taught to do it by their advisors. They probably don't know of actually the primary literature. A lot of a lot of doctors aren't like also scientists who study the primary literature. They just read pamphlets from their medical societies. They have whatever they learned in, in medical school. And so a lot of these a lot of these kind of medical customs persist even in the contemporary period. You know, it's it's interesting. We we like to look back at the 1800s and go, those silly old doctors with their bad medicine and so forth. But you know, there's there's unfortunately a lot of bad medicine still today, and it's it's difficult because there are people who have, I think, a real disregard for the very notion of medical expertise. So you have people who have who adopt very fringe positions, not because they have even better information than doctors or scientists do, but because they're reading blogs on the internet or something and they they have a they have like a conspiratorial mindset. So that's not like better evidence for a claim. But at the same time, I think that people who do have training in science and medicine tend to circle the wagons and pretend that science is this flawless process where just truths are I mean, I saw this thing by Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day where he's like, the thing about science is that it's true, whether you believe it or not. And it's like, well, I don't know, science is super flawed. Science like hopefully wends towards truth over time when you start to clear out the problems and the mistakes, but there's a lot of built-in structural features that make it likely that a lot of false alarms are published. And so, you know, we just have to be skeptical about science without, and we should be skeptical about the claims that we see, you know, floating around on Facebook too. It's, it's hard to find where the scientifically responsible lay citizen Kind of zone is because you can get tempted in either direction into being either in uh, naive awe of scientific claims or getting duped by conspiracies on the internet. Somewhere in the middle of that is a is a healthy skepticism, but it's it doesn't just apply to circumcision. There's lots of yeah. things in medicine that that need a second look. I think what you've just talked about has almost been put on steroids on display with COVID with the rapidly changing ideas around it, first how it transmitted, finally understanding the airborne nature of everything. And you see these kind of dichotomous responses of people to it. Either, see, we can't trust scientists at all. They don't know what they're talking about. They told us this versus, no, you must do everything and you can't question anything. And it's like, no, 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 we're allowed to say it's still an evolving process. And that's what happens. And I think with circumcision, we're seeing at least some evolution. One part of this that I actually would like to to touch on before we go into the health issues, but I've heard, and I, I can't claim the veracity of this, but that most medical training, at least in the U.S., on male anatomy is based on the circumcised penis. There is very little teaching and understanding of what the the function of the foreskin the reason for it being there. And I think about this cultural transmission and the idea of it's just a snip. If you're not trained in understanding the functionality of the foreskin, I think that makes it a lot easier to just dismiss 
it is a, a valid part of the body. Is, is that actually accurate? Is that what's going on in the medical world in the US? So I haven't seen a recent systematic survey of medical textbooks. There was such a survey that was done by a sort of independent researcher who I think was affiliated with groups that oppose circumcision. So it's, it's worth a second look, the person has an agenda. But something like 20 years ago, somebody went and looked at the biggest sample of medical textbooks that they could find. And what they found is in the vast majority of them, the depiction of male anatomy was in a circumcised state. And so it's true that the curricula that at least 20 years ago, according to this paper, most medical doctors in the United States, as opposed to other countries, would have been uh, seeing, would have given them no information about what even is this part of the body. Uh, what are its what's its anatomy? What's its evolutionary history? What are its functions? What's its you know innervation? It would just be assumed that well that's something that just gets cut off at birth, so we don't need to know about that. And then anyway, here's what a here's what a normal penis looks like in our culture. I was a bit skeptical about this paper because it's, it struck me as just really, I mean, you, surely you would depict the anatomy of humans as they evolved pre-surgically. Uh, and then, you know, if you need to show a special thing where you show here's what a circumcised penis looks like. So what I did is, this was just a couple of years ago, I downloaded what I understood to be the kind of latest and greatest um, digital anatomy app that you have on your iPad and that, as I understand, a lot of medical students now prefer to use because it can be constantly updated. And so I, I got the one that was focused on the urogenital system because I figured surely this will have the latest information about anatomy. And I was shocked to see when I zoomed in on the male model and I, I clicked into the genital area, there was no foreskin. It was a circumcised penis. And then I typed in foreskin and it said there's no results. And I was like, wait, okay, surely there's got to be at least like an option that you can <laughs> click to show the thing, right? Um, so then I thought, okay, I'll use the medical term. So I typed in prep use because that's the, that's the medical term. It said, it said, no, you know, there's no results. And then I clicked over the female model and I type in prep use and prep use comes up there because the clitoral hood is the prep use. So the, yeah. the clitoral hood and the penile prep use and the penile foreskin is embryologically starts out the same and then kind of diverges. So they're analogous tissues. And the thing I saw is under the female model, under the clitoral hood, it said the prep use and it says is analogous to the male foreskin. And so the only information I can find in this entire app about the foreskin was on the female model under the clitoral hood. And there just literally was no information. So I wrote the manufacturers and they said, well, we made our app based on American medical textbooks. And we now realize that there's like this global market and that in other countries, there's more knowledge about this part of the body. And so in our next edition, we plan to update this. So I don't know if they did that, but a couple of years ago, in a long way of answering your question, <laughs> as far as I know from my little mini experiment with what I took to be the, the most up-to-date app, there was no information on the foreskin. Wow. I mean, that just, it's, it does seem so insane when you think about it, that that could even still be going on today, that part of the body is just completely ignored. But I think it explains something that I do want to get into, which is these health reasons and some of the almost self-fulfilling health issues that can pop up with this because of this lack of knowledge. But let's start, let's go back because back in 2012, the CDC revised their stance on male circumcision, claiming that now the balance of evidence is that the benefits outweighed the risks for mm -hmm. it and thereby opening, I think, the door for more people to do it. And what I read, too, was and something I think that's worth discussing is because of this, it justified funding the procedure at yeah. Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera, those insurance levels in the U.S. <laughs> and we also know there have been articles coming out recently by certain people who are very 
pro-routine infant circumcision, kind of comparing circumcision to vaccination in terms Ooh. of importance that has gotten press in the mainstream. You did a great critique of all this. So you actually kind of took this to task. And I'm hoping you might be able to give us a bit of a summary of why, A, what really are we talking about when we're talking about benefits versus risks? And why is this not the model that we want to actually be thinking about in terms of, of circumcision? Sure. I mean, I've written a couple of critiques of the health claims, but fortunately, not just me. There's a lot of really yes. bright people uh, who have written scathing critiques of the American medical view. So in 2012, it, was, it wasn't it was the CDC. It was the American Academy oh, of Pediatrics. No, that's Pardon. all right. I mean, late, later, there was, a, there was a report put out by the CDC by an anonymous working group that basically parroted the claims of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So in, in essence, you're right. The CDC kind of updated its policy, but it, it didn't really do a proper job. It just kind of repeated the analysis of the AAP. So the, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, came out with this policy in 2012 where they asserted that the benefits, health benefits of circumcision outweigh the risks. There are a couple of problems with this right from the get-go. One is that they don't show any procedure where they can assign weights to benefits or risks and show how to weigh them against each other. So if you're going to say that the, all the benefits, when you somehow tally them up and assign weights to them, outweigh the risks when you tally those up, you have to have some sort of like scale that you're using to do this. Mm -hmm. And they didn't use any such scale. They didn't assign weights to anything. And so in a, in a follow-up piece, they just sort of admitted, they said, well, we felt the benefits outweighed the risks. This was like eight people who surveyed the literature, and that was kind of their impression. Now, the thing we were just talking about, about the ignorance of the anatomy of the foreskin, the AAP report doesn't say anything about the anatomy of the foreskin. And so what you get is the idea that these eight people here assign the foreskin a value of zero. So if you if you assign a part of the body a value of zero, and, and then you assume that, well, you, if you do it surgically and you know, you're careful, you, you're not going to have too much serious surgical complications, then you just look at, well, what are the benefits of this operation? So you're not, you're not even counting the, the main harm, which is just the, I don't know, the non-voluntary removal of functional, valuable tissue. And so that, that wasn't included in the harm column. So already the math is a little bit rigged. Okay. Now we let's just look at some specific health claims that they raise. The, the significant one that they raise that pertains to before an age of consent, so like in childhood, is there a health benefit, would be a reduction in the risk of urinary tract infections. Now, there's problems with the primary data here because uh, one misdiagnosis of urinary tract infections is more likely in non-circumcised boys than in circumcised boys. So even the ratio that they're using doesn't account for the fact that the, the rate of misdiagnosis is different between the two groups. The other thing is that even if you accept their rate, even if you accept their probably mistaken ratio, on their own account, you'd have to perform more than 100 circumcisions to prevent one urinary tract infection. Now, here's the really strange thing is that girls get UTIs at something like five, six, seven, eight times the rate that boys do, depending on which age group you're looking at in early life. And you don't preemptively remove tissue to try to address these infections. You treat them with antibiotics. I mean, you should always use the least invasive thing that preserves bodily tissue. You don't start with the surgery and certainly not preemptive surgery where 99 of these boys are going to get no benefit in terms of UTIs so that one statistical boy might fail to get a UTI that could have just been treated without recourse to surgery. So if you're if you're doing this seriously, what you should say is, okay, so what is the weight I should assign to this benefit given alternative ways of pursuing it, given the absolute risk of the problem? You should assign it a weight of zero because you don't need surgery to address this problem. And in fact, it's unethical to use surgery to address this problem because if there's no uh, infection 
and the risk of infection is low, lower than it is for girls. And if you get an infection, it's treatable without surgery. It's it's not just like it's a bad idea to use surgery. It's like contrary to medical ethics. You can't. You should not perform a surgery preemptively to deal with an infection that could be treated. That's just contrary to everything else you would do with medicine. So the idea is you should assign that a weight of zero, but who knows what how, what they intuitively assigned the weight of UTIs. They must've thought it was really impressive because that's the main thing that circumcision is supposed to help with in childhood. Another thing they'll talk about is something called phimosis. Now, phimosis just means an inability to retract the foreskin. And congenitally, foreskins in general are not retractable in the early years of life because it's protecting the head of the penis. It's adhered with adhesions. That's the whole point is it's kind of sealing off that part of the body. And then over time, the foreskin will retract. So you shouldn't be able to even diagnose phimosis in the first few years of life, except under unusual circumstances. But then if you have true phimosis where the, the child's much older and they still can't retract the foreskin and it's causing them problems, you don't need a circumcision to treat this. You can treat like 80% of these cases with a steroid cream. You can perform a minor surgery if in like as a last uh, resort where you still preserve most of the tissue. So again, given the alternative available treatments, the benefit of a surgery it should be weighted at zero because you shouldn't be performing a surgery if there's a less invasive treatment. So for the two things that kind of could occur in childhood, you can also maybe get a uh, something called balanitis where you can get an infection. Again, these infections can be treated. And so when most of most of us have some rare thing that might we might get an, an ear infection or something like that, we don't start thinking about surgery. We think of treating the infection and preserving bodily tissue. So the whole account is misguided. And then when it comes to risks, they don't carefully document the risks. They say we don't actually know what all the risks are because they aren't carefully studied in our culture. We don't have a lot of good systematic evidence of what can go wrong. And the final thing here, just to keep myself from going on forever, let's imagine that we now wanted to assign some weight to risks. So let's say that you have like the chance that, um, you know, the, the scalpel slips and you cut off part of the head of the penis. That happens from time to time. We don't know exactly how often, but it happens. So people might say, well, that's rare if it's done by a skilled practitioner. And my thought is it might be rare, but if it happens, it's devastating. And so when you want to understand how bad is the risk of something, you have to take the likelihood of it, which is an unknown rareness because we don't have good documentation of it, multiplied by the badness of it were it to happen. And my thought is that that would be really bad if it were to happen. So I would assign that a pretty significant weight, even if it's rare. So when you, when you actually do a serious weighting of benefits and risks based on the flawed and incomplete data that we have, there's no way that a sane, rational person who's even trying to do a careful scientific job would conclude that the benefits outweigh the risks. And in support of this, I'll just make an appeal to authority, which is every other medical organization internationally that's comparable to the AAP rejected their conclusion. In fact, yeah. uh, you know, just a few months later, a conglomerate of like 40 leading scientists from Europe and uh, one from Canada, the Noni McDonald, wrote a, a scathing critique of the AAP saying, this is not a scientific document, it's a cultural document. And then that interpretation was later affirmed because one of the eight members of the committee, Andrew Friedman, said in an interview, he said, well, I've circumcised my son on the eighth day of his life, but I did it not for medical reasons. I did it for religious reasons because I had 3,000 years of ancestors looking over my shoulder. And he said, we at the AAP committee were not uh, unaware of the fact that there are moves in Europe and elsewhere to try to restrict this practice. And so because we support parental rights, that was sort of part of our thinking when we were putting together this document. So it, it wasn't just a speculative, this is clearly not a scientific document because your reasoning is so poor. It was like admitted that it was not a scientific document. It was a political document to try to, as you say, get funding for the procedure, which benefits the members of the AAP who perform these surgeries. And it was openly political motives to try to come up with some secularly defensible reason why parental rights shouldn't be restricted. So it was just an embarrassment of a document. 
it makes me angry just to think about that because it is it's and when i hear people trying to argue it's often as you said they do sometimes go to oh no 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 i've heard it's really it's beneficial health wise it's really yeah. beneficial and i think some of those health things that i want to dive in on that i think are worth discussing come culturally they're clearly not health but they pop up so for example you hear oh it's so much cleaner or i've seen the problems of boys who have uh, phimosis or something like that pop up. And one of the things, and I hear later in life, people who work with the elderly, oh, you have no idea how many more infections they get when they're not circumcised and it's awful to try and work with them and treat yeah. them. And how I feel like a lot of these, and I'm going to call them kind of mythical health risks because they aren't grounded in science or grounded in what we know from looking internationally as you as you've spoken of but they seem to be a product of what you talked about earlier is this lack of understanding of the male foreskin and yep. so i hear of families going in who did not circumcise but are unaware to tell their doctor not to forcibly retract it at two years or a year even or younger and then i think about people working with the elderly who don't understand just general apparently general cleanliness i don't know what goes on there but what's happening i mean with these myths how can we counteract this idea of cleanliness of forced retraction what yeah. what do we say to families with this so there is some evidence about the forced retraction thing i was uh, looking at a survey that was sent out to every member i think of the society of pediatric urology and it had a reasonably good response rate for these kinds of um, surveys. And it asked about care of the intact penis, the sort of non-circumcised, surgically unmodified penis. And the majority of the, I think American and Canadian, I'm, I think they also had some international members. Uh, the majority of the of the um, these urologists, like people who specialize in pediatric urology, like the ones who should definitely have specialized knowledge, gave totally uninformed advice where they recommended a premature retraction of the foreskin, where they said it should either be done on an age basis, or they said, well, it should be done by the age of three or something like that. So this is like, this, there's, there's like explicit evidence that the people who should know about this, and again, this is just in the American context, because European doctors would never recommend that you would force this tissue back. I mean, just so people understand, the, the foreskin is adhered to the head of the penis at, at birth and for potentially up till puberty. For most people, it resolves by about, I don't know, age seven or eight, um, by, by adhesions, which is sort of like how your finger is fingernail is attached to your finger. So you shouldn't be ripping your fingernail back to clean beneath it. It's like your fingernail is there for a reason. It's protecting your finger and it's tightly adhered. So it's keeping stuff out of that area. So for the same reason, you should, you, you would just, you should definitely not forcibly pull back the foreskin, but many American doctors who, if they're males, they themselves were circumcised at birth. So they don't know anything about this part of the body. They never had to deal with this. They see a kid with what they think of as an extra part of their penis. And they're like, well, we got to get that, you know, let's strip that away so we can get to the real penis underneath. And what they're doing is causing tearing, which can be excruciating to the child. And by the way, increase the risk of urinary tract infections. So another thing that we should just be mindful of here is that these data Data that come from the United States suggesting that non-circumcised boys are the greater risk of urinary tract infections. We don't know this for sure, but there's theoretical reason to think that much of that supposed difference between circumcised and non-circumcised boys is an iatrogenic harm due to premature forced uh, retraction of the foreskin causing tearing, which increases the risk of infections. So that's one thing. The other thing is about you know people who say, I knew a kid once who had lots of infections and had to get a circumcision. Okay. Um, it's obviously because of the way that memory works, we're more likely to remember something going wrong than something not 
having a problem. So in the vast majority of cases, it's more than 99% of cases, before the age of 18, you won't have any kind of uh, foreskin problem that would require circumcision. And we know that from a uh, Danish study where in Denmark, they have two nice sources of data. One is that everybody gets a national medical number. So every procedure that anybody in all of Denmark ever experiences is recorded in a database that's cross-referenced. So even if you get it at one hospital and then you go somewhere else, they can cross-reference these things. And so what they could do is, uh, the other thing is circumcision in Denmark is only performed uh, religiously for Jews and Muslims. It's not performed routinely. And so what they can look at is what are the actual medically necessary circumcisions that are performed between some period on literally everybody in our database, and they can get a precise estimate of when a, a medically necessary circumcision occurs. And I don't want to get the percentage wrong because it's been a while, but I think it was, it was definitely less than 1%. It was a fraction of a percent before the age of 18, where a person can make their own decision, where they actually needed a circumcision for medical reasons. So when you hear someone say, I know someone who this happened to, you have to remember that you're not doing like representative sampling of a population. What you're doing is remembering an unusual case because it's unusual and therefore it's salient and therefore it stays in your memory. Also, you know, circumcisions are over prescribed in the United States. So if a child has some sort of minor problem that could be treated with antibiotics or they have, or, um, you know, some sort of minor uh, procedure, doctors in the US will seize on, well, we better just go ahead and do a circumcision. So in the case of people even thinking that the child needed a circumcision, it's possible that the child was inappropriately circumcised by an ignorant American medical doctor who thinks that circumcision is, is the cure for all sorts of problems. So anyway, it's just, you know, like a lot of anecdotal evidence, it's not good evidence. And so it is a myth as you, as you described. Uh, you, I'm sure you asked another question that I've liked since. <laughs> I'm so into this. I'm just like, wow, I didn't know they had, you know, this is um, Dr. Fritsch's work, right? In Denmark, who's looked at a lot of this stuff as well. Yeah. So you've written so, him as. Yeah. So so this, this study I'm referring to is done by a team called Sneppen and Thorup is the name of the authors. So Fritsch wasn't involved in this. Um, but, oh, he was. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, but Morten Fritsch has, has done some important work. Um, looking doing these national data register database things um where you can where you can look at population level um estimates which are which are really hard to get in the united states because we have this very disjointed medical system and the records are all um incommensurable and so forth yeah we have the same in canada because it's done provincially so right. even though you may be able to track everything in one province you're not if someone moves yeah. somewhere else you're not then tracking what's happening elsewhere so i guess it does make it harder to try and analyze that so yeah. Let's get to the, the, I feel like we have to talk about the issue of money here, because mm -hmm. it seems like that's a real driving force in the US behind these supposed health benefits, because a medical system that relies upon the financing of something, and and I say this because even here, we don't fund circumcision. So if people right. want to do it, they pay out of pocket. And I've met families that have acknowledged that, yeah, you know, we didn't because I wasn't about to pay for it. But had they had it because I had it, that same conversation of, I guess I would have just done it because it was just in the back of my mind. Because even in Canada, the previous generation, like my age um, and up, it was more common. It was certainly more of the normative thing to have, uh, typical to have happen. And so there's still that mindset. But the removal of funding of it, seems to have really reduced the rates because people have to actively pay and search for it. It's not something that's done. How does this affect, you know, I feel like it also affects the perception of health when it's covered by insurance. You know, insurance covers things that are necessary. Yeah. 
so there there are some states where um, complaints were raised that the state's Medicaid systems in the United States were, were paying for circumcision because Medicaid legally is reserved for medically necessary procedures. And by the way, even the most um, pro-circumcision people don't claim that it's medically necessary. They say that there are health benefits that they think outweigh the risks, but obviously it's not like if you don't do this, you'll die or something like that. It's not a life-saving no. procedure. It's something that even they think of as being kind of like prophylactic or something like that. So nobody nobody thinks it's medically necessary. And so on any view, it's it's like Medicaid fraud to bill for a circumcision. And but what ha and so in some states they recognize this and they just excluded circumcision. And what you found is that the rates dropped precipitously, just like you're describing. And I think it's for the, for the reason that yeah, a parent just has to like think about what a circumcision is for a few seconds. And if you if you raise the the cost of the of, of just the inertia and the kind of you know going along with the flow and I don't know that's what we do in our family kind of a thing, and you get people to reflect on it and and, and there's some cost associated with it. A lot of people say, well, I don't know, it's not worth it. And then they'll just ask the doctor. They'll be like, well, I don't. Is this really necessary? And then the doctor, if they're honest, has to say, well, it's not necessary. You know, it's more of a thing that we do, and there might be some benefits, but you know, it's more of a cultural custom. Then people might say, oh, well, in that case, no, I'm not going to pay a thousand dollars to to do this. I mean, that's that would be like paying to get a labiaplasty for your daughter or something. It's like, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. And anyway, that should be her choice, right? Like if she wants to modify her genitals, why am I making that decision for her? Okay, so so that's part of what's going on. And then the money thing also, you know, I don't think that, I hope that there aren't these doctors who perform circumcisions, like rubbing their fingers together, being like, haha, I get to make more money and pay my bills this way. I, I hope it's not like that, but certainly it helps that if you have a certain stream of circumcisions going on in your practice and each one you get billed, you know, you get a health insurance uh, um, compensation for, you know, whatever it is, hundreds of dollars or a thousand dollars as a time, that ends up pretty quickly. And so even if you're not like nefariously trying to defraud your patients by performing un unnecessary surgeries, it's kind of convenient for you to think of it as something that's probably somewhat necessary or at least healthy. And, and so even if you're just dealing with kind of unconscious cognitive processes that help you justify something that is in your benefit, when you add money into the equation, um, it's a billable procedure. And so uh, the, the, that's definitely one of the factors that causes it to continue despite the fact that it's not medically necessary. And legally, it should not be billable on Medicaid. Talking about this, the mention of raising the cost to, to really defer people down, there's the, the actual monetary cost that can do that. But I also see we almost need space for these risks and the problems to come in because I know at a, at a personal level, I have a stepson who is older and that was my husband, you know, first child, they were just go with the flow. This is what you do. Right. And they spoke to their doctor and I mean, luckily and not luckily, um, she dissuaded them very quickly because her son was one who had a very traumatic side effect that will affect him for life. And yeah. so she now counsels all her clients not to do it because she says it's just not worth it there is no her experience led her to read into more of okay what am, what are we really proposing here and hit the same conclusion you did that there's absolutely no benefit to this as we know it and the risk when it goes wrong even if it's rare and of course she had a highly skilled person doing this can be lifelong and catastrophic. Can we talk about some of the risks here that do happen? Because I think there's still a metaphorical just thought for people of, oh, there's a risk of some complication, but what are the complications so that people listening get a better idea of like, no, this is what you're actually pitting as risks, no matter how small, this is what's going on. 
Right. So the most common complications are in local infection and excessive bleeding. And sometimes the bleeding, you, I mean, first of all, babies don't have a lot of blood. So you sometimes have the risk of just really um, serious bleeding problems. And some babies have died from loss of blood um, if you can't staunch the flow. Um, those are the most common complications. Um, sometimes you have uh, a case where the the clamp, so you have to apply basically this three or four different ways of doing this, but you have this metal clamp that applies thousands of pounds of force to restrict the blood flow to the foreskin and basically choke it off so that you, you can then um, cut it off. And it's supposedly it's supposed to create hemostasis, but sometimes that doesn't uh, succeed. Uh, sometimes the clamp gets misplaced. And so you actually pull some of the head of the penis into the clamp and then you slice across and you end up cutting off part of the head of the penis. Um, these things all show up in you know, case reports and case studies. And so we don't have like a good estimate of how often it is, but even under the best circumstances where you have a trained person who specializes in circumcision, you can get these errors. What people should know though, is in a hospital, circumcision is often practice surgery for um, you know, medical students. So medical students are, are they, they may not have performed the surgery before. And now they have, again, a healthy child who does not require surgery. And there's, they, they, they'll watch the surgery happen and then they're supposed to mimic it and do it themselves. And so, you know, if you're handing your child over, you don't know whether you're going to get a skilled person necessarily doing this. You might get somebody who hasn't done it before, um, in which case the risks are, are greater. Um, other risks are the risk of removing too much uh, foreskin uh, tissue so that you don't have enough slack skin remaining to accommodate a full erection without causing tension and pain. And the, the problem here is that you don't know if that risk has happened until much later in life. So if I, if you cut a little tiny penis, there's no dotted line that shows you where the foreskin ends and the rest of the penile skin begins because it's continuous. The foreskin isn't like separate. It's just part of the penile skin system. And so you have to make a guess where you think, well, I guess we're going to cut here. And then the, the problem is that if you, if you, if you remove proportionally too much tissue so that by the time the organ grows by like 200% and the child's, I don't know, entering puberty and they're masturbating and having erections for the first time, they may be having painful erections and not know why that is. They may just think that that's what erections are because they don't have a point of reference. They don't know what the alternative is. And so you have some, you have an unknown percentage of people who 10 years after the surgery has happened are experiencing, you know, taught painful erections and they don't know why. And by the way, that doesn't get recorded anywhere as a complication because, you know, that doctor may be dead for all we know. Like it's not they, and then nobody knows necessarily to attribute it to the circumcision because, again, the child doesn't have a before and after comparison that they can consciously make where they, they attribute the surgery. Um, other risks include uh, the risk of desensitization of the glands. So uh, the, the head of the penis is, is you know, through natural selection, uh, a, it has, has evolved to be an internal organ. So just in the same way that your eye is like internal and it's protected by an eyelid, the head of the penis is internal and it's protected by prepuce. The, cl the, cl the clitoral glands is protected by the clitoral hood. It's the exact same thing. So just imagine removing the clitoral hood from girls, which by the way happens in some Muslim communities, they call it Sunnah female circumcision. Um, then the, the, the clitoral glands becomes exposed. And so you can imagine now it's potentially rubbing against clothing. There's a, a, a callus that can sort of form over the top of what should be moist, sensitive tissue. So, you know, there's all these different debates about exactly what are the sensory properties of the penile glands post-circumcision, and the data are kind of a mess. But the most consistent finding has been that the foreskin itself is the most sensitive part of the penis to light touch sensation. And so that's, that uh, finding has been replicated by independent groups. And so if you remove uh, the foreskin, regardless of what happens to the rest of the penis, you're removing the most sensitive tissue of the penis to light touch and to gentle sensations of warmth. And this has interesting sex sexual implications because if you remove the most sensitive tissue 
of somebody's genitals that itself is elastic and can be played with and stretched and stimulated in various ways, you, you, you turn a dynamic organ, which has multiple parts that move together that have evolved, co-evolved with female genitalia to create a particular type of sensation where these things come together. You remove like a third of the skin system of the penis and you're left with something that where there's no moving parts. You just have a rod and it completely changes the mechanics of sex. So this isn't, by the way, this isn't a risk. Like this might happen. It's like this 100% happens if you, you change the, the very mechanics of the organ. So that's a 100% risk, if you want to call it that, is that your sexual experience will be different. Now, again, if you've never experienced anything else, you, you, you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what sex would have been like had I had a foreskin. That's true. But I, I, I try to use an analogy here because I think people just kind of think that if men can ejaculate, that's all that matters. But I really think that sex is like, hopefully, could be more interesting than whether you can just achieve orgasm or not. That's not the benchmark we should be using for a successful sexual experience. So an analogy I sometimes use is to compare the foreskin to the labia, the female genital labia. Some adult women for whatever culturally pressured, what they regard as aesthetic reasons may desire to cut down their own labia, but that's a choice they make knowing what the trade-off is because the tissue itself has value. It's elastic, like the foreskin is elastic. It has lubricating properties like the foreskin does. It's highly sensitive. So you can do very subtle you know, touches and sensations that feel a particular way. And the thing is, if you remove that tissue, sex just feels different. Like whether you prefer the way that feels is up to you. But, and, and if you had your labia removed in infancy, you wouldn't know any other way that sex could feel. But it seems totally rational to me that a person would say, yeah, but like, I don't know, that tissue seems like sexually sensitive in its own right. And I would like to have the choice of like having my labia stimulated without somebody preemptively removing it from my body. And I think it's the exact same thing for men. If you were circumcised, it doesn't mean you're sexually disabled necessarily, unless you had some sort of botch and actually some men are sexually disabled from circumcisions that have gone wrong. So I don't wanna shame anybody who's been circumcised and suggest you can't enjoy sex, you can. But for people who have literally a complete penis, like an anatomically complete penis, it's like there's more stuff going on. There's more tissue, there's different mechanics, sex feels differently. And so the risk of having a different sexual experience is 100% uh, to circumcision. And it always surprises me that sometimes people feel the need to debate this one because I think there's there is the mix as you said the enjoyment of sex is based on a whole host of factors psychological connection to people there right. is you know it's not just the physical but to say you know the whole purpose of sort going back to what you said at the beginning of the morality and the purity idea of we are going to remove the most sensitive tissue in hopes of avoiding masturbation and these other sexual woes, of course, that's going to change the physical experience of sex. That yeah, it up, just up, up into the 1960s, by the way, the medical consensus was that circumcision diminished the sexual organ, but that was seen as a positive thing. It was like, yeah, it does. Of course, it makes it less sensitive to, to touch, but that's good because then children won't masturbate, which is bad. And it wasn't until the 1960s when you have the kind of sexual revolution that you see these claims suddenly drop out of the medical literature because the values change. So all of a sudden sexual diminution was seen as a harm rather than a benefit. And so because of the investment in circumcision in the culture, it suddenly is a little bit awkward to, to, to tout uh, you know, the loss of sensitivity as, as a benefit, which, which was just the consensus up to that point. 
I want to say one thing about this because I think a lot of people have a misconception, which is when we're talking about sensitivity, we're talking about the qualitative sensation, the way that something feels. We're not talking about just like the level of sensitivity, like a dial or something like that. So you may have acutely sensitive foreskin tissue and control over your ejaculatory reflex. It's not like you somehow, that's something that you have to develop whatever your penis is, is to figure out how to, you know, pay attention to your sensations. And by the way, if the, because the foreskin is so sensitive, you actually have more acute awareness of exactly what's going on. Whereas when you remove that tissue, which it has a whole bunch of nerves that are letting you know exactly what's going on, it's actually harder to tell where you are in the process of uh, whether you're going to have an orgasm or not. And so you actually lose some of the equipment that allows you to have a fine-grained interaction with that, with that. So it's not just like you turn down the dial of sensitivity and so you can, quote-unquote, last longer. That's a mistaken view that people have. And by the way, the older you get, you might need all the sensitivity you can have. So you might think when you're 20 and you haven't learned how to control your ejaculatory reflex that you're like, well, it's good that I'm circumcised, but wait till you're 40 and you're having a hard time maintaining an erection. Now you're going to be probably upset that you don't have this tissue. I mean, I, I actually have a lot of compassion. Imagine that you're somebody who finds out that part of your genitals were removed from you when you were at your most defenseless and you, there's nothing you can do about that. And then someone comes along and says, and, and But you grew up learning that that was good. You, you, thought, you thought it was better looking and cleaner and hygienic and you hear all these excuses in the culture and you think, yeah, I'm better. I'm glad this happened. And then somebody comes along and says, do you, do you even know what a foreskin is? Or like, do you, have you actually read anything about what the implications of this are for your sex life? You have to create a defense mechanism. You can't blame a person for doing that. Like you can't undo a circumcision. And so you've got to somehow deal with it in your mind and, and hope for the best. And you know, this... It's not, I wanted to get more into health related. Maybe we should save this topic for part two, because yes, we are having part two on this conversation here, because there is so much to cover. Um, because I think grief and kind of going into how it perpetuates is a really important topic. But if we have time, we'll get to it today. But I just going back to the sex and the health thing, the one other thing that I feel we have to address, because it's the one of the most commonly one cited now is the HIV trials. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it, it's just, I hear it all the time. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm protecting my kid from sexually transmitted diseases, HIV. This is what it's for now. This seems to be our latching of, again, this combination of, of medical and sexuality coming together yeah. in, in a way. So what are your thoughts on, on those? Okay, I try to be concise here because this is a minefield. But um what people should know, I'll just stick with some basic facts, is that the data that suggests that there's a reduced risk of HIV transmission concerns female-to-male transmission only. And these trials were conducted in sub-Saharan Africa in three different countries in the early 2000s. And these trials were conducted on adult men who were volunteering to be circumcised in regions with heterosexual epidemics of HIV transmission, which does not apply to any so-called Western countries. So in the United States, HIV is primarily transmitted among men who have sex with men, if sexually transmitted HIV, or you know, injecting drug users. Um, and so there's no good evidence that circumcision has a protective effect for men who have sex with men, which is the majority way that HIV is transmitted sexually in the United States and Western Europe and so forth. So what people are doing is they're concerned about heterosexual transmission, which is extremely rare in the United States. So you're you're not likely to have heterosexually transmitted HIV. And, and, and anyway, the best way to protect yourself against that is to practice safe sex practices and use condoms and be um, aware of how many sexual partners you're having and so forth and being tested. I mean, all the normal things that you would do, you should do. And if you do them, your risk of getting HIV heterosexually is like very small. And uh, there's no evidence that that these African trials apply to this different epidemiological environment. And so what's happened is that I'm saving the critique of the trials themselves, by the way, because 
there's a lot of scientific critiques of the trials that would that would take us down the rabbit hole. I will say that there was a fourth trial that was conducted around the same time looking at male to female transmission of HIV. And the female partners of the circumcised men contracted HIV at a higher rate. And so they had to stop the trial early for what they call futility because it, it's not only that it wasn't doing what they expected, it was doing the opposite of what they expected. And then what you'll find is that, that this trial, which if you think about it, sort of cancels out the results of the benefit in the other way, right? If female to male transmission is reduced by about 60% per coital act, which means if you have sex enough, you know, you'll still get HIV if holding everything else equal. It, it was about 60% increase in the opposite direction. And so what has happened is that the global health community that's very enthusiastic about this procedure, they just don't cite that fourth trial. And then they say, well, women will be protected indirectly because if the female to male effect is, is sufficiently big, like over time, there will be somehow less HIV going around and then women will get an indirect effect. And it's like, yeah, but women are directly increased in their risk of, of HIV transmission through the circumcision itself under realistic conditions. So, yeah. and, and the final thing is, you know, children are not at risk of STIs unless they're molested. So the, the final thing is if somebody really thinks that removing part of their genitals is what they consider to be, all things considered, the best approach for reducing the risk of STIs because they've like read the literature and they're somehow convinced by it, you got to give them that option when they're sexually active. You, you yeah. do not make that choice for someone because some, a person could easily read this literature and think that this is just like a nonsense way to protect oneself. Um, and and you, sh you shouldn't make that choice for another person. You know, it reminds me of one study I read, and I wish I could remember the year, but I believe it came out in New Zealand, looking also at how circumcised males were less likely to use protection. So when we think about STIs and whatnot, because it reduces sensitivity even more, they tend to prefer not to use it because it can make achieving climax even harder. There's conflicting data on that. It depends on the population. You're right that some yeah. studies have shown lower rate of condom use or condom adherence among circumcised compared to non-circumcised men. In other populations, it's different. But I will say, even in Africa, where they're really concerned about this, you find that there, in some uh, studies, there's evidence that the men think that they're protected from HIV, and so they stop using condoms. And then they're now, of course, increasing the risk of HIV. Okay. So, so clearly, yeah, we need to talk about that. Now, I know I am very cognizant of time and you are such a busy person and we are at our hour here. I know I get you back again, though, because yeah. we still have to talk about the gender debate on this because that's yeah. something that comes up. I'd like to talk about pain still because that's a lot. And we did get to sex today, but there is a whole layer of of gendered issues, of understanding pain and long-term effects. We talked about some health effects, but I still think the pain issue is somewhat different with the neurological shift in the right. brain with pain and whatnot. So I want to get to that. And then maybe we'll continue our discussion on the African trials and the horror that um, I, I think is not an understatement used there. But I just, I thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your expertise in this. I am very much looking forward to talking more on this, but I am hoping that for people listening, at the very least, this idea of just this backdrop of health can be put to bed, that it really, you need to think about what are the benefits, what are the risks? And as you said, there are no benefits, not for routine infant circumcision. That is not something that needs to be thought of I would say all. Given, given, given alternatives, there are no net benefits that are meaningful. Yes, like you might, you might have a local benefit, but it's outweighed by risk or it's outweighed by the fact that there's an alternative, less risky way of pursuing it. So when you do like a basic medical ethics analysis, there's no meaningful health benefits. Yes, say exactly. Yes. Yeah. Net benefits is the better word. Thank you. So thank you so much for this. We will be back again for part two next week and uh, we will continue our discussion on infant circumcision. 
that's it for this week. I hope you have a better appreciation for why the benefits versus risks issue is not quite as clear cut as it might be. Join me next week as Brian and I continue our conversation, getting into such topics as the gendered nature of the circumcision debate and how parents can struggle when they may regret a decision they have made. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.